we're actually the ones that are disrupting expertise, not reinforcing expertise. So if you need to feel like an expert, you'll struggle here. That is ridiculously hard for people. And they look at me and they say, but you've been doing this a long time. I'm like, yes. And I learned how to do it. It's not that it's innate in me. I built the muscles. To build the muscles, you have to take risks. The first time you do this, it will be painful. The first time you listen harder than you're willing to listen and that, that it will hurt. That because of whatever you were taught, you were taught that you needed to be right. Welcome to a special SheEO.World podcast series, Money and Power, with Joy Anderson, founder of the Criterion Institute, and Vicki Saunders, founder of SheEO. Systems and patterns of power and money are sometimes hard to see. Joy and Vicki identify the systems that make up this world and the money and power dynamics within them so that we can better understand how to transform our world. Well, welcome, Joy Anderson. Again, I'm so excited to have another conversation with you. Uh, we're going to start a long series of discussions around key themes that we notice uh, in the world that we'd like to deconstruct and share with the audience. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks for being with us today. I love that idea of a long series. Like we could think about the eternal Joy and Vicky conversations. <laughs> could, it could be like, it could be stretched out for an eternity. <laughs> There you go. Okay. Well, it, as long as people are listening, we can just keep talking. <laughs> so today we're going to uh, start off with expertise. How about that? Yeah, absolutely. Let's absolutely. talk about this word expertise. Experts. Tell us well, about experts. Actually, the really cool thing on, for me on this one is I'm actually an expert in expertise. <laughs> really? So okay. I am. I wrote my PhD. My dissertation was on the construction of expertise in a democracy. Let's stop. I start off super wonky. So I wrote my dissertation about prison reform in the 1830s. And I studied two societies. One was the Boston Prison Discipline Society, and the other was the Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons, known to my okay. husband and I as PASEO. Um, I don't think they had acronyms in uh, 1830. Who knows? So I, I studied these two societies, and the basic question of this sort of research that I did was who gets to say how public institutions should be run? Mm. So I was looking at a period in, in, in U.S. history where there wasn't a kind of uh, clear reigning narrative about whose expertise we're supposed to trust. Hmm. You know, so much of the American Revolution was about saying not the church, not royalty and aristocracy, but we didn't yet have nonprofits. We didn't have professions, mm -hmm. right? So it was a time before professions existed. There were universities, but universities weren't yet ascribed with the level of you'll get a degree and then you'll have a profession that kind of they were a, a place to learn, but they weren't, they didn't have that same level of, of power to say, you have a degree, therefore, what you, it's Rest all. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. The question was, on what basis do we determine whose expertise we trust? And actually, the answer I came to was that even back in the 1830s, it was the language of the market that dominated in prison reform. That mm. The stories they told each other were actually illustrated in double entry bookkeeping and how do we understand the economic value of prisoners and 
then thinking about what are the balance sheets around prisoners going in insane, coming out insane. Um, they literally tracked how often they masturbated and the extent to which that was a signal. And like, imagine a double entry bookkeeping around masturbation. Like this was, was, was a little... Was okay, I'm like so confused. <laughs> anyway, they were looking at on what basis are we collecting statistics? Are we collecting data? to be able to say which of these different prison systems work because right. it was the first penitentiaries in the world. I mean, there weren't penitentiaries before this. There wasn't an established sense of this is how you run a penitentiary because we had had jails before and now we had penitentiaries. It was the evolution of I want to change something. And in that, this is for me one of the most important questions that we face as in social change is in that moment of social change, when we know that something needs to change, when we know that something needs to be different, whose voice do we trust? Totally. Whose expertise matters? What is the skill set that we want to have in the room that says, you will guide us through this process? And it's an incredibly powerful part of the dialogue. So let's talk about that. Maybe just before we go right into that, when you think of expertise, or expert, I'm an expert at whatever, what comes to mind for you? What comes to mind for me, probably because I've thought about this a lot, is the performance that I don't actually believe. I think, I think what comes to many people's mind is the expert is somebody who is proficient in a certain body of knowledge and therefore could be deferred to on that knowledge and should be just sort of holds a body of knowledge. For me, expertise is actually about the performance of that knowledge. I'll just leave it that way, that expertise is in some ways about the performance of the knowledge, not just having the knowledge. Right. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because for me, when I think of experts, I sort of also think about the outcomes that we have now around that. And so I think experts would say that this is the right way to run a business. Experts would say here are the four paths to like grow a retail business that's under a million bucks in revenue. And it's all historical, right? right? It's all based on the past. And I think if you're starting to go to this new world, I like wonder about that because your expertise is only based on what you've done in the past. You can't get expertise for the future. And right, but to go to what's the conversation du jour, an important conversation, experts say, here's going to be the impact of the coronavirus on the future of the world's economy. Right. Like, I do think there's a way that we trust the analysis of experts beyond past knowledge into their being able to name the directions they're headed. And so with a dramatic reduction in our trust in institutions these days, this becomes increasingly challenging. That's what I see anyway, right? As we start to like not really trust what somebody's saying, right? We have leaders out there uh, in some places who are wanting to be reelected and dampening potentially, who knows if it's true, mm -hmm. lots of conspiracy theories out there, but dampening what's actually truth. What is truth and where are we going with this? And so to use your example of coronavirus, because we're right in it and we will be now, this podcast forever and ever will be dated. <laughs> But really, like, how many cases are there and what's happening? And do you trust the people that are saying that? I just think it's a really important thing to play out also because those two, again, that's part of why I, thinking about expertise in the context of a performance is also recognizing that it isn't, it's about perception. 
It's about trust. It's about, are we seen as expert to somebody else? Like you can be alone in a dark room and think that you are the absolute expert in something, but it only has power if somebody else thinks you're expert. And that, that question of, are you believable to somebody else? is where I think, one, the power issue comes in. So maybe teasing out these two threads. One is, are you seen as an expert by somebody else? And how does that all work? And then the second is, I do want to keep coming back to this idea of, of trust. Maybe leading on that one first, if we can track these two thoughts. But the you named the decline in trust in institutions. And I, I live in the United States. I am in... in in this particular era of insanity about what people say and, and fake news and all of that. And I, I agree that that is, I mean, it's devastating and it's, it's so hard to navigate and it's causing insane intended consequences. Putting that aside for a second though, I actually think the decline in institutional trust is a good thing. Oh, I do too. I mean, I, I think we're in a moment of rethinking what we value and where we want to go with the world, right? And so part of this opportunity of like, so for example, let's just talk about economics for a sec. We have an economic model where anything that's not about like a measurable, you know, financial fits on a balance sheet thing is called an externality and it it doesn't get built into just, you know, any conversations. So the real cost to the world of X, Y, or Z is not really built in. Right. And so experts say, the economy is doing really well, right. but like, what is the economy and who is it serving? Right. We're sort of upside down in my mind where we look at the world and we're like, Oh, the economy is doing great. I'm thinking people are $400 away from like a major crisis and like going bankrupt, but the economy quote unquote is doing well. Right. And that, you know? that also goes to the, the extraordinary relationship between experts and data. And the, the reality is that the people who sit in that privileged position to determine what knowledge is important are the ones who control data. I was thinking about an example from Chicago. Uh, I, was, I was talking to a group of, talking to actually an African-American church in Englewood, Chicago, three or four years ago. And they had done a ton of work to figure out how to build livelihoods within their community and to sort of build family incomes largely through micro-businesses. But the Chicago government and our national government here in the States don't track livelihoods. They track jobs. You know, in some ways that relationship between what do you track is determined by the people who sit in a privileged position reflecting on, on whose knowledge matters you only count a job if you create a job for somebody else, not if you create a job for yourself. Therefore, livelihoods don't count as jobs. And so when corporate bonds get looked at to say, who should we give preferential rates to, to be able to come into the city of Chicago to create jobs, nobody's looking at what the community has done to build livelihoods, because that doesn't count. And that is literally the mass part of our economy, right? This is the thing that I've been wondering about so much around how the narrative got so out of whack in terms of this concept now of chasing unicorns and only focusing on those who raise money to be like these massive sized companies when 90% of the US economy, 98% of the Canadian economy 
and around that number for a lot of other economies are small and medium-sized businesses that have literally been ripped out of the narrative because of advocacy at the top. It's like super crazy. So we all, even though we don't exist in that, we think everybody works in the, the unicorn companies, but it's not the truth. So then the question becomes, in my mind, is that's a problem. That sucks. And we know the data is skewed and we know whose voices are being heard are skewed. The question is, how do we change it? And, and for me, this is a core, is a lot of what Criterion actually works on is, how do we change what expertise is trusted and seen as valid? How do we look at those questions of whose knowledge is valid, whose expertise is valid? Because there's lots and lots of different things that people can be expert on, and there's lots of different ways to perform expertise. But we have gotten stuck in a privileged mode of whose knowledge matters, whose expertise matters, who's trusted, and therefore... We need actually to think strategically at a systems level about what does it take to change whose expertise matters versus just seeing that as an individual, my voice isn't understood, my voice isn't heard. How do we step out of the individual to say, how do we think about this in terms of the broader systems of knowledge and power? Right. Well, and I think we've all been psyched out of our ability to like understand our own expertise, right? So just to use a super tangible example from the CEO perspective, we trust the intuition of 500 women to decide Mm -hmm. who gets selected. And that is complete opposite land to the existing world, which is who's the expert panel? Who's the investment committee of five experts choosing this? If you sort of step back from that, like abstracting that a bit, the reason I did that is because 80% of purchasing decisions are made by women. If we collectively pick the thing that the, the community is most interested in, it will likely succeed. But if five experts go, these three companies or these five companies in your network have the most market potential and no one cares about them, we're not going to help. So we're not leveraging the assets of, of the whole community. And the reason we do that in our world is because we think, oh, we put money towards this, it gets us a return. And I'm thinking, I want people in relationship together. And so if hundreds of people are voting and participating as part of this collectively, we end up having outcomes that are part of the collective whole and we're all in relationship with it as opposed to transactions. Going through that process allows each of us to start to realize, oh, I have some expertise, quote unquote here. I have knowledge. I have something to give to this. When we first started, people didn't think they could vote because they're like, I wouldn't know how to pick a company. And I'm like, we do every day. The economy is created by us buying things, right? So it's actually reinvigorating or resurfacing our own individual understanding of our agency to create change because the jargon and the systems and the professions and all the areas that we've created for expertise have like removed the individual from feeling that they can participate, right? If I don't understand your language, I can't be, you know, like I can't understand the legal process, therefore I can't participate. That is such a beautiful illustration of the connection between process, or to translate to Canada, process, and expertise. Because our ability to be expert, and and this is, I mean, I, I think this is probably true in lots and lots of fields. I just happen to know it best in finance like you. But the ability to perform expertise has to sit within a trusted process, right? So in due diligence, that I am now going to hire an expert committee and that expert committee is going to say whether or not I'm going to hire an expert expert committee. I'll hire an expert to determine whether or not 
this business's approach to renewables is capturing the value in the market. I'm going to hire an expert to assess, or I, I am an expert because I'm an, I'm an investor. And I, because I'm an investor, I therefore can judge all business models and determine whether or not they're effective because I said <laughs> that. I have run one business and therefore I know all businesses and can speak about all of them. You know, that, that yeah. like, right. <laughs> I, I just, I'm, I, I like the number of people who walk in, they're like, well, I worked in business. I'm like, you were a corporate executive. Like, right. What on earth? And there's an amazing knowledge in that, but we need to put it in a context. We need to put it in the context of a process that doesn't give it disproportionate power. Right. And, and now it has disproportionate power, a lot of these things, a lot of the models we have. Right. So it's not just the expertise, it's that the expertise sits in a process, and that process, particularly in systems of finance, then creates a channel for, well, these are the skill sets that we need in each of these processes. And if you change the experts, people stop trusting the process. So that that connection between, I'm not going to trust that your process is right if I don't think the expertise is valid. And the tie between those two is so tight that it makes it hard to change either one without disrupting the whole system, which of course you did in CEO. Well, yeah. And that's why I get people coming to me and going, could you just tell me like, what are the three things I need to change for my venture fund to make it better? <laughs> and I'm like, I just can't write that. Like, I really do think we have to blow it up, right? I think we have to rethink all the elements of it holistically. It's not like you can just put some little element on it and it's going to be fine. It's like the underlying assumptions are bad in a lot of these things. Because right now we're doing due diligence based on not a full picture of what we need when I think I gave this example before, but it's this concept of what are the true costs of things? What are the true costs to society, the social, the environmental costs that don't get built into the models? Because we're just really doing financial analysis. Every year, we have a third-party financial institution in each country that we are in look at the top 25, the semifinalist financials to raise flags. Right. And it's completely hilarious every time. It's like flag, 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 flag. <laughs> From a traditional banking perspective, there's a reason like none of these ventures would get loans. Almost none of them because there's just too many flags. But if you step back and go like the average startup has like 27 days, small business has 27 days of cash flow. Oh my God, your head starts to explode and think this is so at risk. If we loan money to this organization, they have 27 days of cash flow. Like, ah, oh. but you know, when hundreds of women just voted to help this company go and want to become customers, like all bets are off on terms of like what that looks like, you know? And so as an expert, me, I've said this lots of times as an expert, I probably wouldn't have voted for half the companies we funded. And I've been surprised every single year, every right. time. So I like that, but also, yeah, go build a process that everyone's going to trust going forward when it's, it's just really, what is success? Yeah. Addressing that right now is one of Criterion's big bets of how do we, we've started working on a set of process metrics that say, what are the processes? What is the behavior? What are the activities that we need to see to call a fund a gender lens investing fund? Because I don't actually give a crap yeah. if you say you're pointing your money at women Mm -hmm. or you're pointing your money at things that benefit women, if you are not changing the underlying power dynamics, if you mm -hmm. are not paying attention to 
the systems of knowledge that are informing what's a valid investment, then you're using all of the ex previous biases and privilege to inform what's next. And we haven't really changed anything. We're just finding things that you can tolerate within this bucket that is the same set of, of, of systems. So I was just reviewing this last night based on a, a fund that you and I have both been part of shaping, but coming up with a set of process metrics around them. And we're looking at, this is one of my favorite metrics that we're building at. So a metric of local experience and knowledge of the social need or cultural context is valued as a key attribute for all investors and partners. What if that was wow. the metric that we said? And then the indicator for that metric is the dollars spent on what types of expertise? As an investment fund, so you say, what are the three things you look for? I want an answer to that question. What are the three things? What are the five things? What are the process metrics that say that you are questioning systems of power, that you are recognizing your own bias you, and, and, and where your privilege sits and that within that, you're doing something to change it. And we need to get to more tangible measures that are not about outcomes because I don't know if you're going to get to those outcomes for a very long time, but I need to look now at what are you doing. And there's a ton of evidence that says valuing local knowledge, valuing contextual knowledge is kind of the only thing that's going to get you to better gender equality outcomes. Love it. So why don't we elevate that to say, we need to see that local experience and knowledge and knowledge of a specific cultural context is valued in the investment decision-making and show me where. Not just I talked to somebody in the community, but did you pay them? This project that we work on, funded by DFED in, in the Pacific, the thing that I just keep coming back to is we have this program called Pacific Rise. And I, I love this program because it's been one of the more experimental learning labs that I've ever been part of. But we started funding intermediaries in Australia to go work in the Pacific. And we funded them to learn about the Pacific and learn about a gender lens. And we put a lot of resources in, and we've made some a remarkable impact on some amazing intermediaries in Australia, like the Difference Incubator and Social Outcomes and others, like amazing organizations. But if we stepped back, None of those intermediaries, when they went to the Pacific to learn, paid the people they were learning from. So there ended up being a set of local organizations, one sort of particularly badass organization in, in Samoa named Woodsby, got interviewed every single time. They were never paid for those interviews, but the person who was interviewing was being relatively well compensated. I want us to move both from what do we want to see that's different, that isn't just consultative, but challenges some of the core assumptions of what makes processes work? We push pretty often to say, if you want to do a gender lens investing strategy, I want to know what NGO partner, what civil society partner, what women's rights organizations, who are you learning with and how much are you paying? This is actually a little bit of a thing that makes me kind of crazy in Canada. Over the last 
25 or 30 years, there have been 30 reports written on what we should do about supporting women entrepreneurs. What are the policies government should pursue? And they've been written for government, 30. Dr. Barbara Orser has written like 20 of them. The same effing report over and over again saying the same thing to every successive government. And until this government right now, nothing changed. I just remember thinking like, this consultation is such a waste of my time. I'm sitting here again. How many women before me have said the same thing? For decades, we have the case, we have the numbers. And so again, it comes to the system biases, right? Like still here we are at like three to 4% of venture capital going to women. And if you're a woman of color, not even a statistic. And it's like, why do we always have to have all this data to get change happening, right? Anyway, the system's biases are a giant issue, but this, I totally agree with you. When I get called, hey, could I pick your brain about what are the barriers? I'm like, here's a white paper, here's another white paper, here's another white paper, point, point, point. But this new person has been hired to do this new study and they want to hear it again. Right, right. One of the core things that we need to be working on in gender-led investing and kind of all of innovative finance is how are we building the capacity of somebody else to write the damn landscape papers? because. I mean, we see this all over the place. Here is the landscape of who is investable in health and uh, name the market, right? So who is investable? What are the, if we want to work on women's health in Southeast Asia, what is the investable market? Until we are willing to have a different answer to the question and really step back and say, I mean, I get the convenience of it, right? Like I I was talking to an investor yesterday who I adore and she has this amazing landscape report, the Link Foundation, Nancy Swanson. I I I mean, what a a great investor, right? And she's got this great landscape report on on health in Latin America. It is convenient, right? It says it's so convenient and that's what she's getting as feedback, right? So convenient. You've named the companies, you've named the particular areas that you should work that we should work you you've given us this roadmap and we had a really amazing conversation to say but but how much did we really question the boundaries like we just found the quote unquote investable companies based on our same stupid understanding of this and not stupid yeah, it's a limited understanding from a different time. Like it's just not, yeah. It's, it's a limited understanding and it continues to reinforce because then the next thing is if they're not investable companies, we need to go fix them to make them investable. Right. So then the delightful second question is where should we put our technical assistance to be able to make all these companies look like we want them to look? Did you see the Village Capital report that just came out? Yeah. I mean, hands down, let's say that was a white paper that said accelerators don't work and there's nothing that will make them work because the power dynamics in accelerators assume a deficit model that we need to, I mean, I haven't actually read the whole report, I just read the highlights, but like (laughs) the thing that we see over and over again is that accelerators say, you don't look like we think businesses should look. So we will shove you into this system and have you squeeze you into sausages and have you come out looking like you're supposed to look. Absolutely. Every one of those things. And so in 1999, I created the first accelerator in Canada way back in the day, because I've been obsessed forever with how do you create the conditions 
right. for innovation, right? And watching what happened there. But again, like one of the methods that you have is, okay, you're a, your company X, here are the two advisor experts we have. They've done something before. They're going to tell you how to do this. And so you start to like really deplete individual leaders' belief in, right. in their approach because you've now got an expert telling you how to do things. Yeah, it's 100%. And I feel like in particular with women, it's really painful in a lot of these accelerators, right? Because we're really trying to like fit you into a certain model. And just one very quick anecdote was, especially if you're doing social innovation and systems level kind of oh. stuff, it's not easy to say Airbnb for cats you know, in one sentence, because it's got a whole thing attached to it. (laughs) Sorry, I probably overuse that one, but I use that all the time because I'm just like, it's so insane, right? We were trying to get you to say something in a sentence. And I remember I was at this pitch competition once at an accelerator. And one of the guys I know really well was commenting on one of the women who had pitched. He's like, could you just go talk to her or work with her? Because she's just, just like, it's not tight enough. I'm like, she's talking about a process innovation. It doesn't fit in a sentence. You have to explain the context. And they couldn't understand it because they're so used to the one-liners that they would literally say that anyone who couldn't put their pitch into that one-line sentence of Uber for this, Airbnb for X, was bad at pitching. Right. They couldn't even hear differently that this was a different kind of thing. Right. So right. yeah, the sausage factory is super painful. And I'm glad that they wrote that. Yeah, and I think, the, I think there is a set of research that we've done that says... I think there's a more definitive set of knowledge that's coming out that's saying we need to blow up the accelerator process. We need to, we took something that worked in Silicon Valley and somewhere in Colorado and decided that we are going to scale it globally and that we could, with some small tweaks, have it. And and again, this is what process is trusted, right? That, That we end up with, we trust that performance of expertise. We trust that the investors are going to come in and sound like experts, that they will say the things that will inform the entrepreneurs, despite the fact that in many of these places, a small digression, but I remember working at Unreasonable for summer after summer going as as one of the mentors. And the problem with the entrepreneurs was they just, just got a wash of experts who all told them contradictory things. And what they actually needed was time to sort through which one was right. I'm sort of thinking, maybe we need to stop throwing 85 different perspectives at them. The other point I wanted to make, though, is I think we have done a lot to look at the relationship between accelerators and incubators and women as as leaders of businesses. I don't think we have actually looked enough at the underlying social issues that we're trying to address. And does this sausage factory model create enterprises that are more or less likely to address complex social issues? We have this idea that I, I hope we can, we can implement soon, which is to take an accelerator model, put a set of fintech businesses in them, and bring in experts in gender-based violence and ask the question, what would it take to improve the processes of these companies in order to have a reduction as opposed to an increase in gender-based violence as a result of their services? And then what if at the end, the prize was actually the investment capital that let them do the process shifts 
that are needed based on that. Like that's a shift in privileging of expertise to say, how do we say that in this accelerator, the knowledge that's privileged is actually somebody who understands the system in which we're working, not just the investment process. What's kind of coming up as you talk through these pieces is I have two incredible Indigenous women staying with me in Canada at the moment. And we were having this whole conversation because I'm in the moment I'm writing uh, the sort of journey of how we got here. The unfolding of wisdom that's sort of coming out of this idea, like I designed some stuff and then I noticed things that were in the design that I wasn't even aware I was aware of. It's like Mm. this intuitive knowledge they talk about that is not measurable, Mm -hmm. you know, in the world. And it's like, we have this inherent wisdom in us that we're open to receiving uh, that comes Mm -hmm. through and it is an expertise, Mm -hmm. right? And in indigenous culture, this is an expertise they recognize, right? Right. The expertise of elders and also just wisdom coming through that they're like, that is knowledge. And I'm like, oh my God, because it's, I don't, I don't even know how to articulate it and it does have value, but like, I mean, we're still calling like environmental impact intangible, (laughs) you know? So it's like, how do you actually go to that deeper wisdom of human connection and relationships? Yes, absolutely. The question that raises for me is getting back to the social change strategy. We can talk about these things. We can talk about an accelerator where the knowledge of gender-based violence is valued. We could talk about investment processes where wisdom was valued in all of the forms that it shows up. We could talk about data systems that are are starting to value different things. But I think the thing we have to be really realistic about is changing each of those things requires a analysis of the system of power and figuring out where we could step in and have leverage. Because otherwise we're standing at it. And I'm so much of a, I I was never going to be one of those people who's going to live out on on a mountain and farm myself. Like I'm, I'm a, such a instant, I'm a, I'm a systems thinker. I want to work inside of the system and figure out how to change it. Like, yes, I'll try completely new things, but realistically, I want to come back and say, but how would we actually change things so that that is valued? Because what I can say as a historian is there have been different moments in history where different kinds of expertise was valued. This isn't a fixed system where we have always valued, like we used to think that the system of the church had incontrovertible, undeniable power. And that's not just that we don't trust any systems, like we've started trusting different systems. We just don't trust that one. And maybe that, that, lots of reasons why that's a good thing, but we need to stay, it's not just a, we should not trust anything because yeah. People do then find something else to trust. We need to think carefully about how do we disrupt those systems. And this comes to one of the things you and I wanted to talk about in a focused way as well, is how do we use our individual power to disrupt that? Because to be able to shift what expertise is valued, people are going to have to actually take risks, create social change strategies, do bold things, try new things. It's not just going to happen because we want it. No, absolutely. There's this phrase that people use all the time, which I find incredibly weird, lived experience. I remember the first time I heard this, I'm like, what is that? Like, what do you mean lived experience? And the fact that that phrase even exists 
tells me how out of balance we are in the world. <laughs> right? Because there's experts who own everything and set the reality. You literally have to create a term for how I see things called lived. Oh, Vicky has lived experience. What the F? Of course we have lived experience. I'm a person <laughs> in the world. I live. I have experience. But like call it a thing because I have no voice or expertise that's different right. in, in opposition to like the current model, right? So right. I just find this a phrase. I'm like, when I first heard it, I'm like, what the hell is that thing? Right. I say pretty often, I do actually think there is a difference between my personal lived experience and my ability to analyze that experience and process it with others and figure out the extent to which it is a collective experience. That is where we marginalize knowledge as if to say, if I have talked to one person who has experienced that difference that I'm looking for, I then understand it versus recognizing that there isn't one voice from the community who can now speak for the community. Let's not not have anybody in the community at the table, like the absence I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't do that because right. it's a great first step, but it doesn't mean that there has been a pattern systemic analysis of is that person's individual experience? Right? This is what I yeah. drives me crazy about women on boards, that somehow having a woman on a board means that you have can analyze gender. I don't actually know that many women who can analyze gender. They might have had a lived experience of gender, but it is their own personal right. experience of gender. And if they live in a position of privilege, they might have actually never had to think about it very much. Totally agreed. And I also think though, that this is like that I had a personal lived experience as a female entrepreneur, as a woman entrepreneur, and I shared it. And then people are like, that's mine too. And that's mine too. And that's mine too. And it grew and it then became a thing. There's something around I kind of want to come back to this because I feel like I just sort of jump in and take action around these things and you analyze that in a way that helps me to understand what I'm actually doing because I'm just intuiting half the time. Uh, So I appreciate that. I'm wondering about this. It works in practice, but not in theory kind of Mm -hmm. thing. It works in theory, not in practice. Like we're in this moment where I see a lot of ventures in our network are doing systems change work and it is so painful and so hard and you have to do everything at once we're in a very much a show, not tell moment. Part of the thing is like, and one of the reasons why we started CEO the way we did is because it's like, we are going to surface ventures that have new models and new mindsets. And we're going to help them on the journey to grow so that we can then analyze after, are there commonalities and patterns amongst these that we can learn from in order for others to like grow? So we're finding those early adopters and like Mm -hmm. getting behind them. But the analysis of that is really important along the way. And part of the challenge is we don't have this, the constructs, this, how are we tracking impact what are, to, in order for the system to actually digest what we're learning. It's super wild. I was thinking about this yesterday. So I, I do think there is a particular role that Criterion gets to play as a think tank. And it's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that we chose to be a think tank, right? Because we're not implementing a particular model. right? We are stepping back and looking across a wide range of activity. And sometimes that makes us flippant and irrelevant because what needs to happen is somebody needs to show up and build something. And we are not going to be the ones that show up and build something. But we also have a certain vantage point to say that more is possible than what people feel like they can show up and do today. Mm. And 
I see our job really clearly as naming that more is possible and holding a space for pushing the imagination and saying part of the reason we do analysis is not just to critique, but to say sometimes when you do that analysis, you find other patterns that you wouldn't have seen when you were just looking through the lens that you had. We're taking more and more time now to, to do these design sessions where we look at a set of economic activity and say, is there a way that finance can be useful in that realm of economic activity? We did around menstrual health in the Pacific. You know, we just did this gathering in, in Kenya looking at gender-based violence in informal economies and informal labor markets and stepping back and not saying, I have this kind of fund, can I bring this kind of money to this context, but rather saying, could finance be useful in addressing the sex for fish dynamic on Lake Victoria? I don't know, but I, I know that I won't get to a full enough answer if I simply ask that perspective as a provider of bank capital, because yeah. then I'm saying, can I use my kind of money, not can a system of finance? So this kind of flipping it and saying, so I think we need both and, and this is where, you know, it's why I love our friendship and I love the sort of broader community of people working on this to say, yes, we need radical demonstrations of a particular experience that is loud and bold and great. And we need the deeper analysis that shows how bloody complex everything is. We just need to do both of those things. And you have to do both. And I, yeah. And I, and I mean, as I just so you've reframed how I think about money so much over the last few years and that even just this question of like, how can we use finance to transform systems, to create the change that you're wanting to change? Like another layer underneath that for me though, is I can see how money could be used to support what we're doing, right? With, with our radical experiment. Mm -hmm. And then there's like another element to that question, which is how can I encourage the people who are going to support us to not put their normal restrictions on that money, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just the money, but it's the rules with the money. Mm -hmm. So, and I think a lot of people could answer the, like, how could we use finance for this? But the challenge that I see is just to your exact point, someone will say, I'm really interested in, in this issue, you know, the sex fishery piece, and here are the rules for the money, which then makes sure that that radical demo is never happening. Because they'll say, you have to do X by this date and you have to, like, there's all these conditions. One of the things that I have noticed about us, it, I was, uh, it's been super painful, but we have only really had restricted capital until this year. So I never had anyone sitting on top of my head saying, you didn't hit your numbers. You didn't do this this yeah. way. Because we've really been following the energy and flowing with it. I wonder if you've seen examples of people really stepping back and going, okay, we're going to, you know, over to you to figure this out. Like, are people doing that? Are we getting to a point now where we're going to sort of trust the person with the quote unquote lived experience to, to go play? I just don't think we throw spaghetti at a wall enough. We, we still have a lot of rules around how the money gets used. This is about this other topic we're going to talk about of, of reframes. So reframes are this weird thing. Our imagination is driven by the I mean, this is brain science or whatever. I haven't done, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in brain science, but our minds go in certain patterns and they go in predictable patterns because otherwise I think we would explode on a daily basis, right? If we don't have shortcuts that say, this is how things work. 
I remember Jackie Vandenberg when we were first, you know, building the field of potential lens investing. She had an investor who had said to her that she would sort of take her hand and slam it in the middle of her face, like in a in a kind of perpendicular way, and say, "You're asking me to split my brain. That's just not how I think, right?" You want me to think about the the sort of we've said this about philanthropy and and investing for a long time. You, you're 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 confusing me. I can't do social change and investing at the same time. Investing is with money, money and social change is done with with philanthropy, and I can't do both. And that was a classic example of it, it literally hurt people's brains to change that thinking. I <laughs> did have a one of my early, early on in Criterion, one of my colleagues was one of the people we worked with a lot was the head of the Methodist Pension Fund. And she used to say to me, you just make everybody's brain hurt, Joy. Like it was just, <laughs> because I think that when you're asking one to make this change, to have a different imagination, to name a different set of possibilities requires that we do these kinds of reframes, by which I mean we start with actually a pretty empathic understanding of where people's minds sit now. How do they understand things now? And what could be reframed in how they understand things? And so they could see things differently. So we have a list of like nine, nine reframes in gender lens investing that we cycle through and think about what are the ways that your brain needs to shift? So one is how do you move from back-end metrics to front-end analytics? Because at some basic level, we say gender, and people immediately think about the ESG table in Appendix C and how many women were served. I say gender lens investing, and people say impact metrics. Why did you say that? Like, why is that what we're thinking about? Well, it's about the impact on women and girls. I'm like, well, is it? Like, why is that so clearly in your head? And the challenge with that, like, why, why can't it just be about the impact on women and girls? The problem is, in systems of finance, the impact measurement in Appendix C is not the driving decision-making force. So if you are not affecting the front-end analytics of how that investment is being made, you will stay largely irrelevant. And now I'm all yeah. for all the people working to say, let's have the impact measurement drive more of the process. Sure, that's a different change strategy. This is to say, well, if we're only in back-end metrics, we are not looking at front-end analytics. And so that sort of role of the reframe, another yeah. reframe that we've been working on is sort of how do we think about the future of gender? Most people think about issues related to gender equality in the chronic risk current bucket, and they don't have a picture of the future of gender. That ends up being a reframe that says, oh, shit, I didn't know gender had a future. But wow, what would it mean for gender to have a future? And people's brains start, well, hurting a little bit, but yeah. also noodling on a different pot of noodles. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I mean, I completely resonate in every part of my body around the cognitive distance challenge of reframes, which I have noted to be like, it's just been wild to experience this. Like, imagine everyone votes to select these five ventures, then we trust them to divide up the money. What do you mean? Yeah, we say to them, there's $500,000 on the table over to you to divide it up. 
You can't give it all to one. You can't divide it up evenly. If you're a traditional like thinker around money is like, oh my God, you just gave away the power to the recipients. What's that all about? That's scary. Do you trust them or not? We're trying to control in all of our things, right? We've got a lot of these kinds of examples. We have six reframes on our site as well, which we call mindset shifts. And to go from this place of scarcity to abundance, there's never enough. We believe there's enough. We have hundreds of women helping. All of these things are really different. And like, I just really think the biggest one that has been so challenging for us has been moving from transaction to relationship. Uh, And like, what's in it for me? With my money, I expect a return and I want it back to, you're gifting this forward. You know, and then people just go, what? You're you're doing a 0% interest loan to entrepreneurs that you're trusting to divide it up. And you're trusting that they'll pay it back on their own terms through their own milestones that they set. We don't set them. Every piece of it is so different. And I'm like, yeah, but if we just do more of this, we're going to get more of the way the world works. And there's enough indications that that's not happening. But do you trust yourself to walk into a different thing? And you said this earlier, but we've made up all of these pieces. It's all made up from a different time. And what if we were wrong? (laughs) You know, we really didn't know what we were doing and we were kind of just making it up. So how about we try that again? You have to kind of have a certain sense of personal agency to believe that that's possible. The part of the problem is the people for whom the system isn't working and that they would clearly look at it and say, no, this is actually a piece of shit are not the ones who are controlling whether or not the system gets to change. So exactly. Yeah. Some of that is there. But but in that, the kind of again, how do we disrupt this? Because yes, that's how it is. And so what the hell do we do? This role of reframes and then 85 billion examples that illustrate why that's possible. Yes. And over and over and over. Story over tell over. it, share it undeniable realities that show something's possible to do it differently. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, but again, like, you know, for the change makers out there who may be listening and wondering how you do this, I mean, you from my perspective, you follow the energy on this, right? You take your crazy idea, you lob it out there. And as people start to follow, you storytell those pieces and you do not spend a second trying to convince people who don't get it. Walk away. Like one of my biggest things is, don't try and convince. If you even hear people say that, oh, I was trying to convince, but don't convince because it will bog you down and you'll get stuck. Find the people that get that and move with them as quickly as you can. That'll help you to get things going and show. But if you're trying to drag along 80% of the population, you're just gonna have so many non-believers that it'll, you'll probably not get your change off the ground. I would add to that, what I think we lose as an opportunity is... I come up with reframes and figure out how the work that we're trying to get done needs to be framed differently or what stories we need to do or what possibilities. I do that by listening. Right. And I think as soon as you move into a convincing mode, you've stopped listening to what's happening in the other person's brain. Why are they stuck? And I would say the times that I have been most wrong in my career was times that I stopped listening to why people were stuck. I can be pretty compelling. And so I'll sometimes just talk over people. I suppose I've gotten good enough at that, that in continuing to talk, I can kind of navigate through, but I watch their faces the whole time. And I'm thinking, you know what? They need a different story. They need yeah, a absolutely. Different, oh, different story. Okay. Diff- and it's not to convince. It's to 
understand what gives people a pathway to the place that they might want to be, right. but they can't get there. Right? Absolutely. So yeah. We do all of this work. And, and, and this is a piece that I'm often trying to distinguish is I don't want to walk away from engaging somebody who's not able to engage because they're afraid or because nobody's ever given them the option. Like most of my life is spent with people who don't work in finance, for whom that's not their first language. And if I started by saying, do you want to come play with us on working in finance? They would all say no. And so the question is, what is the invitation? And how do we keep getting two better invitations? Because I agree with you, we shouldn't, I can't stand it when people get on a phone call with me and what they want to do is convince me of something. So I'm just like, why, why, why aren't you actually, how, how do you even know how to convince me if you're not, if we're not having a conversation? Because right. otherwise you won't even know if I'm listening to you at all. But within that, this kind of, how do we listen and respond and figure out, and this is what you do so brilliantly, is figure out what are the different what do people need to feel invited into this? And what do they need to hear to have them say, oh, that's right, I could do that. Yeah. And that flips that sense of possibility. Yeah, and I think, you know, you start, I'm just laughing to myself at the original language we used for CEO, the whole, like what we thought was going to happen, which was so wrong. The only right. thing I know for sure as an entrepreneur is whatever the plan is, that's not happening. That's the only thing right. you know that's not going to happen. I over hundreds and thousands of conversations in the last five years have heard all of the blocks for people, right. Right? right? All the different pieces. And so I've been able to learn how to story tell those, but there are many, many, many of these blocks that I never would have anticipated because we often walk into the world thinking people sort of get our perspective. And so that's just such a beautiful thing to go. Like everyone's got a different reality. Everyone's seeing things a little bit differently. The, the thing that's been very interesting working with women all over the world is, holy moly, we got a lot of things going on in our brains that are blocks for like doing this stuff, which is exactly why we are where we are, right? right? This is why 51% of the population is like represented 3% of leadership positions. The structures are super biased towards us, but because it's been decades of this, we also believe a lot of these things about ourselves, which are absolutely not true. And as we start to unlock that, and find our own personal agency and power, like all bets are off. The world is definitely going to get better once we do those things. But yeah, I just, I love that. Whoa, I just learned today X. That's unbelievable. I never would have thought that would be an issue. This two-pocketed world we live in, which is like I give philanthropy out of one pocket or I think of investing in the other and I can't have both hands in the same pockets at the same time because like my head explodes. <laughs> you know, like I can't think that way. Some people can and others can't. And so this is our most delicious moment in time right now where we are quite baked in like a mindset and a reality that's almost like a religion. And we have to like unfold that and unravel that and uh, be in an uncomfortable space, which is super different and have the courage to step into other possibilities. And it's very, very, very hard to do that in isolation. It's pretty much impossible. The whole piece of this is to get into community together, to realize that other people feel the same way and to start to take our, each other on that path. That is super, super, super tough. And so communities, uh, I think, and relationships is the answer yeah. because we cannot change on our own. We're a social species. We're meant to be 
in relationship together. And that will help us. But like changing on your own, isolated by yourself, good luck with that. Well, well, I also think that builds on another another way of looking at you can't change on your own is for change to happen, somebody else needs to change, not just you, right? Like, so at some point we need to be figuring out when I, when I run into people who feel like their idea doesn't have traction, often it's because they haven't listened. And I think it helps to be in, as you just said, it helps to be in a community where you can have that ongoing feedback and am I crazy? And, you know, people who are trusted to say, you're not actually making sense right now. Super helpful. But we used to have this category of, you should distinguish between three ions and what we call dreary boys. I'm not sure I've talked about this before with mm-hmm. you, but we had this sort of free ions in the world where people who bounced around in the world and as a result of bouncing around the world, they created more energy as a result of their engaging. I always look for free ions where they're out in the world and they are not just sucking energy from the world, but they're, they're that in the interchange, in the, I think I looked this up once and it was actually a decent metaphor, but there's something about ions that connect with each other. And as a result of being out in the world, they create more energy. I'm not a chemist. You're not making that up. That makes not making that up. So our, our somewhat gendered, (laughs) radically gendered alternative was these dreary boys. They're the ones that come to you and say, this is my idea. Let me tell you why this will work. And now let me tell you why you are wrong to not think that this will work. Because what's really important is that you understand my idea. And almost anybody who says to me, let me show you my demo. I know they're going to be a dreary boy because they want to show me how it works in such a way. And I've, I, there are yeah. very few exceptions of people who've shown yeah. me demos totally. yeah. that were not just, if I can control your experience and not actually let you talk, I can show you what you need to see. That is not something that creates energy in the world. That is a kind of, they're the folks who show up and say, I'm going to suck energy from the world because what I need it to do is to come to my thing. So anytime somebody actually loses their, not anytime somebody loses their job, but when people say, I'm going to leave my job or something happened that is going to mean that I, I need to be out in the world, I'm like, cool, potentially a free ion. And I want the folks who are in that interstitial space to say, I have a moment where I'm free versus I now need you to find me a job. There's something energetically about how we see our role in the world. And I I know the moments that I'm not in a good place when I'm thinking about what I need to make my shit work versus I'm thinking about how I'm showing up in the world to make things in the world work. Yeah. And big difference. I get lost when it's about my shit and I turn into somebody who's convincing people to pay about, convincing people to, to care about my shit and more comes, more is created, more value is created when I'm that more of a non-anxious presence. Totally. It's the questions versus statements, right? Constantly. It's like walking in and, and being 
again, to your point, more in dialogue as opposed to sort of like the pitching piece, I would say, I am an expert, just now that we've like dumped our expertise piece, but I am an expert in noticing (laughs) when people are tuning out when they're not there and like trying to navigate that, like almost with Aikido, right? To try and find my way into what is it this person needs? What are the blocks? And sometimes it's just like, they're not going to get there. I often reflect on the fact that I've always had these interesting and sort of weird names for all of my companies. One of them was called Kids Energy. And there are people who would be like, what the hell is this kids nerd thing? Like they couldn't, and I'd, and I'd be like, kids energy. And they'd be like, no, yeah, 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 that one, nerd, kids nerd. What is that? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, okay, not my people, <laughs> you know? Or they would come along and they're like, I went to your website. I, I don't understand anything you're talking about. Like, what do you do? And then other people would be like, I came to your website and it's, I've been waiting for you my whole life. And I would have this 50-50 split of things. I do actually really believe as well that there, there is a sort of energy around ideas and in ideas in which they're presented that sometimes it's just like people can't get. Like there are people who go, shio, shiro, like they can't even say it. Like, does that stand for something? I get that all the time. Does that stand for something like CEO, CEO? Oh, okay. I also believe that like, it's not just that you're not explaining it well, or you're not open. I think there are just some people who just don't resonate with some ideas. I really do believe that over the years and that's okay. So until it shows up in the water supply and then everyone's going to convert. Maybe. Yeah. I'm just, I'm listening to you though. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about you and I do this well, right? And we do it all the time. I spoke someplace. I was at in Naples, Florida for two days and, and I, I spoke over two days and it was a pretty, gave four talks in two days and I, I felt out of it. I felt lost. I felt like until the very last talk, like I wasn't actually communicating to anybody. I was just saying things. I think the thing that I just want to name is you and I do this all the time and it's bloody freaking hard. Oh, it is. And it's a practice. Hold and on. it's a practice and it requires... I was about to say it requires Teflon skin, but in some ways it requires you not to have Teflon because then everything's bouncing off of you and you're not actually responding. And so I think lots of people go out into the world and arm themselves to face the world and face rejection. I think I've been doing this for so long that I've often forgotten that what it takes to build the muscles to keep going out and I and, and I do think it's it's not just an introvert, extrovert thing. Some people can do this, some people can't. I think it's a training thing. Oh, I think it it's, a, it's a mindset shift. It's a, it's a discipline. It's a practice. It's something that requires building. Mis- dis- I see it in, in my own team as they show up for the first time forever they've been and they go, shit, we don't have the answers here. I'm like, no, we're actually the ones that are disrupting expertise not reinforcing expertise. So if you need to feel like an expert, you'll struggle here. Yeah. You're like, shucks. <laughs> right? And that's, that is ridiculously hard for people. But oh, totally, it has, and they look at me and they say, but you've been doing this a long time. I'm like, yes. And I learned how to do it. It's not that it's innate in me. It's that I, I built the muscles and to build the muscles, you have to take risks. The first time you do this, it will be painful. The first time you listen harder than you're willing to listen and that, that it will hurt. That because of whatever you were taught, you were taught that you needed to be right. 
I think I also just never really believed I had, <laughs> never believed I was right. So I wasn't, I, I like, I've sort of been in, been in this endless state of curiosity. So there wasn't as much to lose. I'm pretty sure I'm right now about a bunch of stuff, but it took a long time to get there. Yeah. When I think the other, the humility being like probably the greatest characteristic of a leader uh, is just, you know, whatever has happened in the past has happened in the past. It doesn't always work the same way. Things can change. Right. Like what I continue to learn over and over again is like, who knows, right? Timing, the universe, there's so many elements that are a part of these things. What may have been true 99 times in your life will inevitably have one time where it's not. And just showing up, paying attention, noticing and staying humble is part of this whole journey too. There just absolutely is not a right way of doing anything. And the number one question I get asked over and over by entrepreneurs is, am I doing this right? I feel like I want to cry every time I hear that because we have so enforced this, that there is a right way to do things. So many people question that, right? Well, if it's not working for me, I must not be doing it right. But I think most of this human journey is about finding your way and your path. We need everybody's different approach to create a beautiful oasis on this planet and not, you know, some monoculture, mono definition of success unicorny thing. And I, I have to tell you this. Oh my God. I listened to a podcast yesterday and I just about passed out because there's a new phrase, not a unicorn anymore. It's a decacorn. Oh fuck. Like unicorns don't matter anymore. Now it's decacorns. And I was just like, I, what, <laughs> what? Stop the insanity. So like doubling down on it's unicorns aren't big enough anymore. So yeah, there is no right way. We've got to reinvent all of these pieces. Thank you for listening to the Money and Power series on the Shio.World podcast with Vicki Saunders and Joy Anderson. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. To learn more, go to Shio.World and CriterionInstitute.org.